0: Well, last week we started a new sermon series on the subject of stewardship, and if you were with us last week or if you were to go listen to that message online, you would recall that we've defined stewardship as as the job of managing something like an organization or, or managing the property that belongs to another person. Now, that concept isn't all that unfamiliar to us. and In fact, it doesn't just exist within the church world. We might just use the word stewardship more often in church. But the principle exists beyond here. It exists in our workplaces. It exists in sports teams and clubs and and in the church for sure. But quite often, we come across it by other terms. We come across it by synonyms such as manager or, or supervisor or an overseer of an area, And so that's a common term we have in our world, but but stewardship in a biblical sense takes that common definition of managing somebody else's property or resources. Biblical stewardship takes that a step further. It takes it a step further by first of all saying that we as people have been identified as the stewards, but also the owner has been identified as God. And therefore, we are the stewards of all that God has placed into our hands. And since he is the owner, it all exists for his purposes and for his glory. We saw this in a couple of verses we looked at last week. In particular, a very common passage where David is, is offering a prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29, where he said, everything comes from you, and we have only given to you what comes from your hand. And then in the New Testament, we saw that, that Paul had also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for whose glory? For the glory of God. For everything that we do is for the glory of God. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, this is the responsibility. This is the job that we've been given. Now, to consider this as a job is very different than probably any other job that you have ever had. If you think about the different jobs you may have had, different professions over a lifetime that you may have encountered, how do they usually work out? Well, typically you hear of an opportunity, and then you sit back and you wonder, do I I have what it takes to even possibly consider applying for that job? And and if you think you do, then you you put in your resume, a summary of who you are and your abilities, your attributes, your experiences, and, and you offer that in. And if the potential employer you've offered that to thinks there might be something on there that would be a good fit, they call you and they bring you in for an interview. Pretty familiar way for us to go about getting a job. And as I imagine many of us are aware, once we get called for that interview, they take you and they ask you some questions, some rather well known, predictable questions, such as what are some of your strengths? What are some of your weaknesses? Do you work independently or do I have to watch you like a hawk to make sure you don't steal all the pens? Type of thing. So you've probably been asked some of these through different interviews that you have been through. But there are some companies nowadays that are throwing curveballs. They're throwing curveballs and they're asking oddball questions or seemingly odd questions some that you would never see coming, some that you can't prepare. You can anticipate what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses before you go to the interview, but they're throwing oddball questions you would never see coming, you can't prepare in advance for. And these are not just some small-time companies. These are some large firms that are asking these questions. And so I came across some of them this week, and I thought, I wonder what our staff would say as they ask them some of these questions. So I took some time at staff meeting and bounced some of these questions off them. So here's a sample of, of some of them. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the company JetBlue in the States, a a big airline down in the States, company named JetBlue. Here's one of the questions that they commonly ask nowadays. How many quarters would you need to reach the height of the Empire State Building? That takes some quick math to do that. So I asked the staff that, and a lot of them just sort of threw out some random guesses, because how in the world would you ever figure that out? But then there was one very thoughtful person named Ryan, who you guys have come to know, who said, one... That one? And, and he said, yeah, one. One quarter mile should about cover it. <laughs> I thought, there's either something wrong with Ryan or that's genius. <laughs> one or the other. We figure one quarter mile should about do it. Uh, if you're curious about the answer, the actual answer is 336,000 quarters <laughs> would reach the height. But here's another one. Uh, Dell Computers. We're all familiar with, with Dell Computers. They ask people the question, what song best describes your work ethic? So very quickly, one, one staff member said Danger Zone. Remember that song from back in the 80s? One, uh, one said the song Purpose, which I thought was heading more towards perhaps some of the church work that we're doing here. Uh, one offered up the song Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And one likes the song called Friday, which is a contemporary song, but they're looking towards Friday. So, then there was one final one here, a company named uh, Whole Foods. You may recall Whole Foods, a big American company again, who was moving into Alberta but decided not to, unfortunately. But Whole Foods asked some of their new employees this question. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses? (laughs) Now, this one took a while (laughs) to come to a decision on. But we did come to a consensus. The consensus was we would rather fight one horse-sized duck... Because that animal would not be very agile, so you might actually stand a chance against it. The other way is if you have 100 duck-sized horses, even if you were able to defeat 10 of them, you still got 90 to go, which is an awful lot. And at the end of the day, ducks are actually pretty mean if you ever try to confront a duck by the lake. So, so some of these odd questions that companies are asking, and it may seem strange, but you know what, these are large companies who are doing this for a very strategic purpose. They're asking questions that are in line with the job that they're wanting people to do. And it seems odd to us here, but they have done the work to determine. These questions will help the managers decide, has this person got the right stuff? Have they got what it takes to do the job? Do they have the right characteristics that will enable them to succeed in this role that we're calling them to? But what about the responsibilities? What about the job of being a steward that God has placed before us? What characteristics would help us to be good stewards of all that God has placed into our hands? Well, at the most basic level, just by the fact that we are human beings, qualifies us to apply for this job. Because we are created in the image of God, and God, as we talked last week, gave that responsibility to us. But what other characteristics What other characteristics do we need to have in our lives to apply and to live out if we hope to one day hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful steward? Well, for the time that we have for this morning, I want to unpack a couple of these for you. I want to walk through three dominant life characteristics of biblical stewardship for us to consider. But before I do, I need to let you know that this message comes with a bit of a public service announcement. Because as we walk through this, we're going to talk about these three things. And I wouldn't be surprised if as you hear these, if you feel like you're falling short on all three of them. I can tell you, I I sure did as I wrote it this past week. And so my goal here is not to be discouraging. And if we measure ourselves against all three of them and go, oh man, I am so far behind. Why even start? That's not my goal at all. And I don't want this to be a discouraging topic as we go through these three things. I do want it to be a challenging topic though. And so what I invite you to do is this. I invite you to consider taking in the information on all three of these characteristics. Taking the information on all three. But then choose one. Just choose one that you say that the Spirit is leading you to say, that's the one I'm going to grab hold of. That's the one I'm going to prayerfully consider, and I'm going to try and take steps to apply to my life in the days ahead. So let's learn about all three of these, but then grab hold of one and prayerfully commit to it, to process it, and intentionally put it into practice in the days ahead. Okay? All right. So to help you pick what that one might be, let's walk through these three. The first characteristic of a faithful steward is that a faithful steward lives an examined life. Throughout the Bible, we see this principle. This principle of self-examination that comes up a number of times. But not only in the Bible, if you think about even your own, your own life in, in home and at work, different responsibilities are called to as well. This is a common principle for us to consider. As we're managing somebody else's property, it seems logical and common practice to, to do some self-examination from time to time. Consider, for example, if you were a financial administrator, you would be investing somebody else's money. And so it would make sense, it would be logical to check in on how your investments, how your choices are doing from time to time. Consider if you were a babysitter looking after somebody else's kids, it would make sense to check in on them occasionally, right, over the over the period of time, but you might also want to consider how could I communicate better, how could I play with them better to be a more effective caretaker myself as a pastor i 'm constantly doing evaluations of my own my own Life in terms of personal productivity? How am I using my time, which is one of the most valuable commodities that I have? Am I using that the best way I possibly could? Can I improve my communication style? Can I improve my teaching style? As I'm looking at the church as a whole, how about our Sunday services and our other ministries? Are they fruitful? Are they achieving the goals they are intended to achieve? There's this idea of constant self-evaluation that goes on in the world all around us, regardless of the responsibilities we're called to. And the same can hold true for everything that God has placed into our hands. Because we are managers of that. And so we need to be asking the question, how effective are we being? Are we using these for His glory? Or are we seeking to determine the glory of our own calling? And this is going to require us to look at a few areas of our lives. It will require us to look at our behaviors. You know, am I focused upon habits that are going to be honoring to God? Or am I practicing habits or making choices that would be going in a different direction? As we examine our motives, last week we talked about the distinction between open hands and closed hands. Are our hands open to God's plan as he places things, as he uses things, maybe even as he removes things? Are we open to that, to his motives? Or are we more aligned with having closed hands where we're seeking to control, grasp, and own ourselves? What's our motives? Also, are we effectively being replicas of Jesus? Remember back into the 90s, it's a little bit cheesy now, but back in the 90s they had that question, what would Jesus do? And everybody had the bracelets and the Bible covers and things like that. Limitations to that question that's out there, but the root of it was the question, are you following in his footsteps? Are we seeking to do things, to be imitators, to be a replica of Jesus and using these things the way that he would want us to do? Now, a few people like undergoing performance evaluations or performance reviews at work. Quite often when you hear your performance evaluations coming up, it can lead to, well, to some stress, some anxiety. People tend to avoid them. If my boss doesn't bring it up, I'm not going to bring it up, right? But if we're honest with it, even though we don't always like them, we know they have a purpose. We know that they're actually quite effective in what they intend to do. And so we can see purpose and value in them. Now, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul told the church in Corinth, in essence, to do this in, in a spiritual sense. And he said this to them in 2 Corinthians. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And what he's doing here is he's challenging them to examine their lives. To consider, do my behaviors, do my words, do my actions, do my attitudes, my motives, do these things provide evidence that Jesus Christ is in me? He's encouraging them to take the test, to engage in that self examination, to say, is there evidence that Jesus Christ is in me? Because as he was teaching throughout these chapters as well, there was no room for cheap grace, there was no room in their lives for an idea of repentantless forgiveness of a powerless spirit. And if those who <clears throat> and if those were to exist in a person's life, well then they would fail the test, they would fail that self-examination, and they would then find themselves in a point of crisis. Which is why he challenged them to take the test. But isn't it true that quite often we only engage in self-examination once we find ourselves in crisis? It's only at that point we take a step back and try and take stock. Okay, where did this go wrong? Where did this all come off the tracks? That's when we finally stop and look at the choices and the events that have led to the place that we find ourselves in, in that moment of crisis. And we try and determine what caused that situation. Now, that is better than no examination at all. But how much easier would it be? How much more effective would it be if instead we practiced Routine examination of our spiritual lives. You now, Nadine and I have this conversation on a regular basis. But not in terms of spiritual examination, in terms of physical examination, because she thinks I need to go for an annual physical on a regular basis. <laughs> and all the wives said amen, right? She believes that I need to go and get a physical done at least once a year because it's good preventative maintenance. I, however, believe it's a waste of time, right? Why? Because I'm a guy. Because I'm not sick. Right? If it hurts, I'll give it a few days. See if it goes away. If not, maybe not. I was talking to one of my guy friends this past week, and, and, and he kind of acknowledged and understood what I was talking about. And we actually reflected back to our days when we were playing football. And you would come off the football field, you go to the sideline, and the coach had one question for you. Are you hurt or are you injured? Because those are two different things. If you're hurt, we're going to tape it up, we're going to wrap it up, and we're going to put you back out there. If you're injured, we're going to take you to the hospital. So are you hurt or are you injured? And that's sometimes the the direction that we can come at. But I want to admit in front of all of you here today that my wife is right, that I should get a physical. (laughs) I know that she's right. And I know that the only reason I don't is because, well, frankly, I'm stubborn. (laughs) But we all know people And we all know stories where they caught the disease too late because they didn't go for that annual examination. We all know stories where it could have been prevented. They could have got ahead of it. And it leads to heartbreaking outcomes for so many because they didn't engage in that, which just further enforces the importance of doing that routine physical examination. But so too does it show the emphasis and the importance of doing it on a spiritual sense in our spiritual lives. Because the impact of not living a life that is examined can be very serious. Because if we're off even just a little bit, as time goes on, that can lead to huge problems. If you talk to a pilot, a pilot will tell you that a plane will be off course up to 95% of the time that it's in the air which means that they need to make constant little adjustments. It's, it's off course due to wind currents and changes in barometric pressure and all sorts of things. And so they need to be constantly vigilant of keeping that plane on course because if they just don't pay attention for a while, when it comes time to land, they'll be nowhere near where they were intending to go. Nowhere near what their flight plan said they should be going towards. So folks, there are gravitational pulls, there are winds of temptation in this life that can very quickly get us off course too. So as we seek to be faithful stewards, let us consider how we may live an examined life is the first characteristic. The second characteristic of a faithful steward is this. A faithful steward is one who lives a controlled life. Now being in control is something that people like to do. It's also something that they tend to struggle with doing. We like to have control over our freedoms, have control over our life decisions, but we wrestle with self-control. And that can be in many, many areas. All of us have an area where self-control is a little weaker than it might be for the person beside you, or it might be weaker in your life than some other areas. You might find that you have a self-control struggle in the area of perhaps your temper, maybe your, your appetite, It could be an emotional issue. It could be uh, self-control of the tongue, saying wrong things or saying too many things, gossiping, things like that. It could be a problem in the areas of lust, perhaps in the area of spending. The list goes on. There's no limit, really, to what this list can involve. There's areas that we all wrestle with in terms of self-control. But fortunately, we're not alone in this. We're not alone in the challenge to maintain self-control because we're told that it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, Paul told us this in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you were with us a few months earlier when we were doing this series on a sure Foundation, we spoke for a little while on the Holy Spirit. And if you recall during that series, we talked about how the fruit of the Spirit can exist within the believer's life, but it's also within our ability to stifle the work of the Spirit in our life. And we can stifle it if our our allegiances are to things that are contrary to those of God. If instead of being aligned to the will of the Spirit, in line to the work the Spirit is ready and willing to do within us, if instead we have aligned ourselves with the desires of the flesh. Just a few verses before Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit, he says this, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so you are not to do whatever you want. There's a sense of self-control that comes through that. That's another way of saying this is that we are not to do whatever we want, we are to have self-control, to, to live a disciplined life. And in keeping with this, is one of one of Paul's well-known passages found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he speaks of the discipline of an athlete. How an athlete has to work hard to keep their body under control. How they have to follow a strict training, rigorous training program if they want to be the victor. And this is not effort. This is not work without purpose. They do this. They, they bring their body and their appetites under control because they're seeking to achieve the victor's prize. They have that mindset in their mind where I will sacrifice my own desires and train I will eat well, I will exercise, I will do what needs to be done because I am seeking the victor's prize. There is no room for second place. I am seeking first place. As far as they are concerned, second place is first loser is the mindset that they have. Now, if you've ever trained for a sport, if you've ever trained for a marathon or or even just committed to go to the gym for the purpose of losing weight, you know that it takes discipline. It is not an easy thing to do by any means. It takes a lot of self-control if you want to make good choices and succeed at that. If you want to work out, you got to stick to a plan, which means saying no to other things, saying no to your favorite TV shows. It means saying no to working extra hours that would keep you out of the gym. It says no to hanging out with friends sometimes and find balance in all these areas so that you can fit it in and make it a commitment. It means eating right learning to eat smaller portions and learning to like vegetables, which is a struggle for a lot of people to do. And I don't mean the fried kind of vegetables like french fries and chips and cookies and cakes that are all wonderfully baked and good, but they're not good for you. It means getting enough sleep, allowing your body to recover and rest, which means you either need to skip or PVR the Tonight Show because it keeps you up too late. But people who do this will tell you after a few weeks it gets easier. It doesn't mean... It's devoid of choice. It still will continue to require self control, but it gets easier because they start to see the results. And the results are extremely motivating to a person. Well, so too in our spiritual lives. It takes discipline and it takes self control to accomplish wonderful things in our spiritual lives, but again, it is not without purpose. There's an incredible purpose, as Paul tells us at the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 after he speaks about the athletes submitting themselves to this rigorous training, he says, no, now I strike a blow to my body, and I make it my slave so that I will not be disqualified from the prize. Paul is not here promoting asceticism and some sense of severe bodily discipline for religious reasons. That's not what he's talking about when he says, I strike a blow to my body. Rather, what he is saying is that he is committed to the spiritual training. He is committed to the exercises it will take so that his ministry will not become futile. So that all the effort he's being put into this would not be without great purpose. And Paul calls us to engage in this rigorous approach to the daily Christian living as well. And so as we seek to find that balance between freedom and restraint, whether that be at work, or at play, at church, wherever we're called to in the world, may we always have a sense that we are never off duty. May we never be unguarded against those desires of the flesh, but stay in a state of control. Back in the book of Proverbs, Solomon explained it beautifully in this fashion. He said, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken through We all know areas in our lives where the walls are the weakest. We know areas where the walls need repair because maybe they already have been broken through. But as you consider one of these characteristics in which you could grab hold of and put into application in these days ahead, perhaps this area of self-control is one that you need to start with. And if that's the case, it begins with admitting that area where the walls are weak. If we're not honest with ourself, It won't change. We need to acknowledge what that area is where the walls are weakest or maybe even already broken through. And once you've acknowledged that to yourself, I want to encourage you to tell somebody, to find one trusted person, one person who can be a confidant, one person who is a godly individual who can walk with you perhaps, but tell that person what it is. Perhaps it's a struggle with, with your temper, with the appetite, With the tongue, with the lust, with spending, whatever it is, admit it to yourself and then bring it into the light by telling somebody. One of the most powerful ways that the enemy that wrestles with us keeps us in bondage is by telling us we can't share, telling us we will be rejected if we let anybody know. But how many times did Jesus talk in terms of bringing things into the light? To bring it out of the darkness. Bring it into the light. And when we bring it into the light, even by telling one person, we are released in a huge way from the bondage that the enemy tries to keep us in. From the lies he tells us that you will be rejected, that nobody can help you, that you are stuck. Those are the lies of the enemy. They are not true. Admit it to ourselves, tell somebody, but then start looking at Scripture. What does Scripture say? There's wonderful truths we find in the Bible on how to live and how to overcome so many of these challenges, to look into God's Word and start to apply what Scripture tells us. Now, there may be situations where we need to go even a step further beyond that and get into a group or get, even get into some professional counseling. If it is at a point like that for you and you're wrestling with an area of self-control that you think is that serious, would you please consider trusting myself or Pastor Luke with that? Not that we are professional counselors, but we can do some counseling, and if it is beyond our abilities, we have means to get access to professional counseling for you so that you may find freedom and take steps, perhaps for the first time, in this area of control within your own life. So a faithful steward is one who lives an examined life, is one who lives a controlled life, and then finally, a faithful steward is one who lives a sacrificial life. With Jesus as our example... And as the one that we're seeking to follow, we cannot really consider ourselves faithful stewards unless we're following in his footsteps. And so much of his story is around sacrifice. The passage we read earlier in this service speaks about how our whole lives should be offered as living sacrifices. In Romans 12, where he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. Now, Jesus speaks of this idea of sacrificial living and this idea of denying the self in in Luke 9, where he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The cross that Jesus is referring to and that he would very soon find himself hanging upon had one purpose. The cross existed for the one purpose, which was to kill someone. And as he applies this, to the disciples that are following him, he's not speaking of them being martyrs for the sake of the good news, even though some of them would. Some of them would be killed, even with a cross, for the sake of the good news. That's not explicitly what he was talking about here. What he's calling them to is to daily put to death their own wishes, desires, agendas, comforts, even to some extent to put to death their own hopes, not because these are bad things, Now, we're not suggesting these things need to be put to death because they are bad and that they are wrong, but here's the challenge. Some of us have very noble desires and very noble objectives and agendas and very virtuous plans and desires set before us. But here's the problem. What happens when they are in conflict with God's plans? Which one is going to emerge victorious? So it's not a call to put to death because we are always constantly seeking evil. It's a desire to put to death because there is nothing that should be taking first place above what God's will and what God's plan is for us. When our desires and God's desires line up, that is a wonderfully glorious thing. But if they're in conflict, which one's going to come out ahead? And the call is that the one that comes out ahead is the one that is according to God's will. And so we need to take up our cross daily as an act of sacrifice that we would be of a single purpose. Of a single focus, and that focus being upon God and the kingdom he's called us to be about. A call to sacrifice for the greater good of the kingdom and the world that we're called to seek to win. That's what Jesus was seeking to accomplish when he died upon the cross, for that same purpose. His whole ministry and his final act of sacrifice was seeking the greater good of the kingdom in the world which he was seeking to win. And at the end, he then passed that torch to us. And there's no really no higher calling. There's no higher calling and no power, more powerful demonstration of stewardship than willingly and sacrificially giving to others. We read about this in 1 John chapter 3, where it says, We know what love is because Jesus gave his life for us. This is why we must give our lives for each other. Regardless of how great or how small the opportunity we have before us to serve as stewards, if it is within our means, if it is within our ability, this is an incredibly powerful demonstration that gives evidence that we understand everything we have is His and everything we have is for His glory. You know, we're only one week now, almost two weeks into this series, and I've already heard wonderful stories of how people. <coughs> are seeking to be good stewards of what God has placed into their hands. I've heard stories of people who have opened up their lives, opened up their resources, opened up their homes to those who are in need. And there have been times of struggle. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that when we're being good stewards, it's always going to be easy. It is a challenge. And there may be times of struggles in the midst of some of those stories I've heard. But in the midst of that, the individual has chosen joy over defeat within the midst of it. I've heard stories of meals being delivered, funds being given for necessities that people are going without, of people giving up their free time so that the parents of a young family could have a night out on their own. Some of these wonderful things that people have used their resources, their times, and their talents with open hands to serve others. Even within the terms of ministry, I've encountered people who are holding their ministries within this church with open hands, who have an openness and a sensitivity to the need that from time to time, some things change. There's a need to revise, there's a need to review, there's a need to adapt to meet the greater need, a need that is not focused upon the self, but focused upon the greater kingdom and the world that we're seeking to reach. And so even within our church, within our ministries, there's a need to hold those things with open hands as things are added, changed, and possibly even removed according to the will of God. But in each and every single case of the stories I've heard, a sacrifice was made, a person or a group chose to give up their own personal preference to see that what they had could be used for the greater glory of God. And it was so encouraging to them, and to me as well, to hear that this was happening. So to wrap up these thoughts on the characteristics of sacrifice that should exist in the life of a faithful steward, I ask you to consider this. If Jesus' example of giving his life was the maximal sacrifice we might ever be called to make, it kind of puts it into context. The modest modest daily sacrifices of our time, of our talents, of our resources that have been entrusted to us. If you hold those in the balance, the maximum call of sacrifice is the example of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. And we compare that relatively to the sacrifice he calls us to make on a daily basis in service of him. I pray that we would take that responsibility of stewards. And that we would seek to support others and to support his kingdom with our choices. So how are we doing? How are we personally doing in the life of being a good and faithful steward? And we've covered a fair bit of material here this morning. And, and for some, there may be points that were more challenging for others. But I pray that you will find one of these three that you can take with you and put into practice this coming week. Remember to seek to find a way that you can apply that. Perhaps it's in the area of living an examined life. We can ask ourselves the question, are our lives on the right course? Are they on the course that's been set by the Master? Do we need to make any course corrections that we can get back on track with the plan that the Master has for us? In part to a degree, that's what the Promise Keepers Conference is going to be talking about if you guys want to join me up later in March. Maybe it's the controlled life. Are we being vigilant that we are in control of our appetites and of the impulses that seem to come against us? Are we ensuring that they do not end up controlling us, but rather that we are controlling them? Because the spirit and the flesh will be in conflict and one needs to emerge victorious. I pray we we'll be in contract and it would be the urges of the spirit. Or finally, the sacrificial life as we regularly and generously sacrifice what's been placed into our hands in hopes that to the glory of God, we can bring a little bit of heaven to people here on earth. This is a tremendous challenge. But remember, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. So let us prayerfully consider what God's Spirit might be saying to us this morning, which one of these three we might be able to be pointed towards and commit to grow in that area as good and faithful stewards. I'm going to close with a word of prayer for us that we may have discernment in those areas. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, first of all, caring enough, trusting enough, empowering enough that you have placed so many wonderful things in our hands, that you've given us these opportunities, you've given us this high calling of stewardship and responsibility as as your ambassadors and your agents in this world. God, may we have that mindset and, and, and that eye focused upon you that says, Everything I have is yours and for your glory. That is a tough thing to come to terms with, Lord. Some things are easier than others. Lord, I know that myself and others here have some areas that they wrestle to to release control to you of some of those things. God, may your spirit be working in us. Help us, Lord, to examine these three characteristics of a steward and to find the one that is spirit-led, that it may be spirit-enabled this week ahead as we seek to apply and to grow in this area. Lord, for those who are stuck in a a sense of bondage, lacking self-control in an area, may we be a community of faith who can rally around those people and help them find freedom, to bring it into the light, to find healing, to find restoration, to experience your grace in that. God, help us to be agents of your grace and of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name.